On behalf of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one provided for you in the pew in front of you. And you will find Luke chapter 17 on page 876 of the church Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, please go ahead and take that one home with you. That is this congregation's gift to you so that you would have a copy of God's Word. I'll be reading from verse 1 down to verse 10, and then I'll ask the Lord's help on our time together as we work our way through this passage a little bit at a time. should be around 45 minutes or so. Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed. You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted, planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? And serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you this morning. We ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit understanding according to your word. You have the words of eternal life. Father, I trust that our people know that they are not hanging upon my words for life, but yours. And so I ask that what I would speak here today would not only be true, but it would be balanced and accurate. It would be helpful and good. If there's anything in my notes here that is unhelpful, I pray that it would be forgotten. And whatever is helpful would find good soil and bear fruit for the glory of Christ. Amen. On Wednesday evening around the dinner table, my daughter Lillian asked us, um, what's your favorite Bible story? And uh, Ethan, my youngest, answered Noah's Ark, which is a great answer. I think Emma was working or something. I answered with that story um, of that prophet who those kids made fun of for being bald and then he cursed them and the she-bear came out and mauled them to death. 
for obvious reasons. Great story. Sarah's answer was the best answer, as her answers usually are. She answered with the story of Joseph. If it's been a minute since you've read the story of Joseph Joseph in Genesis 37 to 50, uh, maybe you take some time this afternoon and read it. It is fantastic. Without a doubt, it's one of the most incredible and moving stories of forgiveness in the whole Bible. Joseph has a slew of older brothers, and he is his father's favorite son. He knows that. They know that. They're not too thrilled about that. And so they decide to stage his death and sell him into slavery, as one does. Joseph goes into slavery in Egypt, and he's falsely accused while a slave. gets thrown into jail. And while he's in prison, God enables him to interpret a dream of Pharaoh's foretelling of a famine to come. And Pharaoh is so impressed by this that he, he appoints Joseph number two in all of Egypt, and he tasks Joseph with preparing the country for the famine, which is an amazing part of the story, but that isn't the best part of the story. The famine comes, and Egypt is the only place around with food, and so Joseph's brothers come begging Egypt for food, and they don't recognize their brother. And Joseph has all of the power, and his brothers have none of the power. And he could easily refuse his brothers. They could starve. He could throw them into prison, see how they like it, turn them into slaves, a taste of their own medicine. But instead, he reveals himself to them. He forgives them of the sin that they've committed against him. It's a touching story, a moving story, an amazing story. And you read again, you wonder, why would Joseph do this? Why would Joseph forgive his brothers for such heinous sins that they've committed against him? They sold him into slavery. They lied about him getting killed. Well, Joseph gives us the answer. He tells us in Genesis 45, as Joseph is explaining to his brothers, he says, God sent me here to preserve you. It wasn't you who sent me here, but God. Later, he tells them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph forgave his brothers for the sins they committed against him because he understood that his life was under the wise providence of God. That Joseph was a servant of God and that all that happened to Joseph happened to him because God meant for it to happen. That his mistreatment became their salvation. While he was a slave, while he was falsely accused, while he was in prison, Joseph could not have known God's plan. He just had to trust God's hand. The lesson of the text before us this morning is similar. And it is this. Unworthy servants who've received the Lord's mercy walk in miracle-working faith, preventing temptation and forgiving sin. Those unworthy servants who have received God's mercy will walk in miracle-working faith, preventing temptation and forgiving sin. Four points to draw out of the text in front of us. The first point comes from verses 1 and 2, and it is, 
that forgiven sinners prevent temptation. Forgiven sinners prevent temptation. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. Jesus said to the disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. The Lord is telling his disciples that temptations to sin are inevitable. The the original language in verse 1 is emphatic. Literally, it says, it is impossible that temptations would not come. The word that Jesus uses here for temptation is a word that means stumbling block. So picture like bait in a trap. Enticement to turn from God to something else, to lure someone away from trusting in God. Temptation. And Jesus says it's sure to come. It's around every corner. It's, it's like gravity acting on your flesh. An illustration I often used in counseling is that of a plane. A, a Boeing 747 weighs something like 400,000 pounds. There's a lot of gravity acting on a 200-pound aircraft. And yet this metal tube flies through the air like a bird. How is this possible? How can such a heavy piece of steel fly through the air? Well, it introduces a power more powerful than the power of gravity. Jet propulsion and the laws of thermodynamics overcome gravity and the plane can fly. But the moment that the pilot slows the engines or turns them off, gravity takes over and the plane falls. You see, gravity is always acting on the airplane, even while it's flying. When God saved you, you were filled with His Holy Spirit. And the power of the Spirit is greater than the power of sin in your life. The power of the Holy Spirit is what enables you as a Christian to say no to sin and temptation and say yes to God. But the moment that you cut the engines of your spiritual life, neglecting God's Word, neglecting prayer, neglecting the corporate gathering, neglecting the Lord's Supper, gravity pulls on your flesh and you're in for a crash. This is because gravity is constantly at work in your life, pulling your flesh toward sin. God told Cain, after all, in Genesis 4, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Well, that's life in a fallen world. Temptation is sure to come, and it's a big deal. It's a very big deal. Listen to what the Lord says next. Don't participate in temptation, but prevent it. He says, woe to the one through whom temptations come. It'd be better if a millstone were hung around the person's neck and then they were cast into the sea than that he should cause a little one of these, uh, one of these little ones to sin. Millstones were these large, round, donut-shaped 
stones that they would use to grind uh, wheat for grain and olives for oil. And Jesus says that if you are one of those folks through whom temptations come, it would be better if one end of a rope was tied around your neck and the other end was tied around a millstone and that you were tossed into the sea. In other words, if you cause one of these little ones to sin, your situation would be improved if your feet were tied to concrete blocks and you went swimming in the deep sea. Drowning is a better experience than the penalty that God will impose. It's a big deal. Now, little ones is often a reference in the New Testament to children. But here it seems that the Lord is referencing young believers. Leading another believer, especially a young believer, to sin against God is a grave offense. And so Jesus says, beware. So what does this look like? What might be some examples of leading a little one into temptation? I'll give you a few. Some of these may hurt. One example would be when our sinful actions and behaviors set a bad example for a younger Christian. Another example would be murmuring and complaining, which would cause another Christian to become discontent. Another example is when we're not careful with our words and they prejudice someone against another without reason. When we solicit juicy gossip from someone. When we won't back down from an argument and provoke someone to anger. When we exaggerate problems, making a situation seem worse than it is, which would cause a young believer to worry. I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. It is things that we do that would put a stumbling block in someone else's way, causing a young believer to sin. Oh, wait a minute, Pastor. That's on them. What I do, that's on me. But what they do, that's their responsibility. And that's true. Your faith is personal. But your faith is not private. Holiness is more than a personal pursuit. It is a community commitment. We need one another. We are accountable for one another. We must watch out for one another and help one another in the fight against sin. We must not lure one another into sin. Christian, your job is, especially when interacting with a younger believer, to remove obstacles, not to put them in their way. And this brings us to the second point, which is that forgiven sinners... Forgive sinners. Forgiven sinners. Forgive sinners. This appears in verses 3 and 4. The Lord says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. But if he sins against you seven times in the day, 
and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. What the Lord seems to have in mind here is a community of faith wherein the members care for one another's spiritual well-being. Members are willing to do the hard thing, which is to confront sin. For the sole purpose of doing the even harder thing, which is to forgive sin. So the picture is of a community of forgiven sinners committed to forgiving one another for the sins that they commit against one another. Those who have received lavish grace from the Lord dull it out on everyone. Though we must admit, as the Lord warns, there are dangers here. In dealing with sin in a community, there are ditches on both sides. And it's good for us to be aware of them. Literally, verse 3 says, be on your guard. There are dangers in dealing with sin in the Christian community. I mean, the Apostle Paul said as much. If anyone is caught in any transgression, Paul says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then he says, but be careful, lest you too will not fall into temptation. Jesus says, if, you, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And one of the dangers, one of the ditches is to ignore sin. Someone has sinned against you, rather than rebuking them, rather than pursuing reconciliation, forgiveness, you just ignore it. Not, not as forbearance out of love, but to put distance between the two of you. Maybe you don't want to rebuke because deep down you, don't, you know they might repent and then you have to repent, you have to forgive them. You don't want to forgive them. Just as soon not see them ever again. So pay attention. That's a ditch. Maybe you don't want to engage with them or rebuke the sin because you hate conflict. That's understandable. After all, 2 Timothy 2 the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil. And so if this is a quarreling over words, then, yeah, it's probably best to just keep your mouth shut. If this is about a reconciliation with a brother and sister because of some sin, then rebuke them humbly, gently, and be ready to forgive. Because the sin that has been committed has strained the unity that you share in Christ. And that sin is bringing a danger on her and on others. And because you love her and long to be restored to the unity that you share, you're willing to put yourself in the uncomfortable place of rebuking her sin. Another danger in dealing with sin in the community is the tendency to over-rebuke. So this is the ditch on the other side. Now, there are some who tend to see everything they don't agree with as sin. In PBC, there must be a straight line between the Bible and what you're rebuking as sin. If the line is squiggly, Meaning, if you can step back and say honestly that a Bible-believing, faithful Christian could be looking at this differently than I'm looking at it, 
then it's probably best to back down. Because when we rebuke, we deal in verifiable facts, we deal in clear biblical truth. When facts are disputed, when motivations can't be easily discerned, we do not speak of what we do not know, lest we bear false witness. But in either situation, humble yourself, pray like crazy, and go to the person and just ask. Sister, it seems to me that this is what you've done. Now, just look, it would surprise me if this is true. And I want you to know that if it is true and you have sinned against me in these ways, I just want you to know I'm so happy and so eager to forgive you and to be reconciled to you. But I might have my facts wrong. Please, is this true? Christian, we walk carefully. We walk slowly in these matters. Our tools are scalpels. They're not hand grenades. Now, what if she denies it? I didn't do that. I didn't say that. It wasn't me. No, some of you are not going to like this. You believe her. Love believes all things. You've done your part. God, the Holy Spirit, will do his part. I mean, didn't Jesus himself promise us back in chapter 12, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So believe her, pray for her, and trust the Lord. In his love for your sister, he will expose her sin if it's there. He will bring it to light. But more than anything else, We must remember that the whole point in rebuking sin is so that we can forgive sin. This is always about reconciliation and forgiveness. So Christian, you don't rebuke and then cut and run. That is not how we handle things with one another. You rebuke so that you can forgive, so that you can be restored to that person. So that you can once again enjoy the community that God gave his son for you to enjoy. Well, the Lord makes this abundantly clear, doesn't he? He says, if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent. Maybe we should underline this portion. You must forgive him. So it seems to me our Lord expects that the default mode of the Christian is to offer forgiveness over and over and over and over again, even seven times in the same day. All right, pause. Hold up. How do we know he's actually repentant? We don't. But God does. Won't that make me look like a pushover? I just keep repenting or keep forgiving over and over and over and over again? Same day? Probably. What's keeping people from just trampling all over me? Nothing. 
Won't people just take advantage of me? But they might. I can't do that, Pastor. No, you can't. But Jesus says you must. And so you see why verse 5 is here. Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> and that brings us to the third point. The forgiven operate in miracle working faith. The forgiven operate in miracle working faith. Let's look at verse 5 and 6. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey. So the apostles just got told by the Lord of the universe that they must never limit their forgiveness of anyone of any offense. That forgiveness for the repentant sinner is unlimited. And so I, I very much appreciate the apostles' honesty. Yeah, we're going to need a little bit more faith for that. And they came to the right place for faith for that. I also appreciate that they understood that what was required in order to deal with sin is more faith. What's required to, to offer forgiveness is more faith. It doesn't take a lot of faith to rebuke. It takes some. But it's the forgiveness part that's going to stretch you. And so the request is very instructive. The disciples recognize that their ability to forgive is an expression of their faith in God. It isn't their feelings. Notice, they didn't ask Jesus, yeah, I'm going to need more love for that. Seven times in the I'm going to have to love him more. No, their hesitancy to offer forgiveness seven times in a day wasn't about love. It wasn't a lack of love. It was a lack of trust in the Lord. Forgiveness is about faith. When we say no to forgiveness, when we hold grudges, when we dig trenches between us, it is not from a lack of love, but a lack of faith. Because we don't actually believe that God will keep his word and do right by us. Forgive him seven times in a day. I don't know that I can give you that kind of latitude with my life, Lord. So we put a limiter on our forgiveness. I mean, once bitten, twice shy. Isn't that how it goes? We don't actually believe that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. But the apostles understood this was a matter of faith. And it's so kind of the Lord to even clarify that, their understanding of faith. Because it seems that they're thinking of faith in terms of a quantity, which is how we often think of it. And they needed a little work on that, and so the Lord gives them that. He says it's not about quantity, even mustard seed. And we've already used the illustration of, a, of an airplane, so we'll just use another one. Imagine that on that same 747, there is a 
grandfather and a grandson. And the grandfather has made many trips on an airplane. He studied airplanes. He knows the laws of thermodynamics. He has a lot of faith that this airplane is going to get off the ground and get him safely to where he's going. But his grandson has never flown before. He's never studied thermodynamics. He doesn't understand how a 200-ton airplane could fly through the air and safely land. And so he has very little faith in the airplane. But the airplane, airplane flies and lands safely for both of them. Because it's not really a matter of how much faith you have in the airplane. What matters is the safety of the airplane, the reliability of the laws of thermodynamics. So whether the little boy had little faith and the grandfather had lots of faith didn't matter. It mattered what they put their faith in, you see? And so what Jesus is saying is, in order to forgive someone for the offense that they've committed against you, it doesn't, it's not about how much faith you have, it's about what your faith is in that matters. That's the point. Jesus says, if you have a very little amount of faith, you can tell this mulberry tree to uproot itself and to be planted in the sea. And the point is, that's a ridiculous thing. That's an impossible thing. That's a miracle. And that's the point. The faith-working miracle is God's people willing to forgive the repentant sinner seven times in a day. That's the miracle. They need to put their faith in God for that. And when they did, he would work the miracle. And so, Christian, you must forgive. It is your duty. But it is right, I think, at some level to say, what? how can God expect this from me? How can God expect so much? That's unreasonable. How can God ask me to risk so much by just telling someone I forgive you over and over and over again? Being abused. How am I going to find it in myself to forgive someone for seven times in the same day? And the answer is... You won't. You won't find it in yourself. Well, the gravity is too strong. You've got to employ a force that is more powerful than the force that keeps you guarding yourself from further mistreatment. Ephesians 4.32 has our answer. The Apostle Paul writes, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So there's your answer. Where am I going to find it in myself to forgive him? I'm not. I have to find it somewhere else. I find it at the cross of Jesus Christ. We look to the one who forgave us. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Consider our Lord's forgiveness of our sins. PBC, you just sang it. Our sins are great. His mercy is more. Consider our Lord's forgiveness of our sins and then forgive others. Forgiven sinners. 
forgive sinners. So forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. And how did, how did God do this? Well, he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. Now, we don't die for our brother or sister's sins. But we die to ourselves. We die to the desire to avenge ourselves against the wrong they've done. We entrust ourselves to our Lord who judges justly. And we release them from the debt that they've incurred by the thing that they've done. And we commit from then on that we won't engage with one another as if that thing happened. Because that's how God does with us. And we commit and make promises to say, I'm not going to bring this issue up again to your hurt. Because that's what God does with me. And we promise to that person, I'm not going to bring this up to anyone else to your hurt. Because that's what God does with us. Forgiven sinners. Forgive sinners. So you walk the miracle. You transplant the mulberry tree. You go to the Lord and you do business with the cross. And you trust that the Lord will do right by you in the end. And you forgive. For this is our duty. We are unworthy servants. And that brings us to our fourth and final point. We are all unworthy servants. We are all unworthy servants. This appears in verses 7 to 10. Jesus tells maybe a parable. I'm not sure. Just an illustration. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Or will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Jesus is teaching the disciples that they are unworthy servants, that they have received the undeserved forgiveness from God, forgiven of their sins. And those who have been forgiven of their sins have a duty to offer forgiveness to others for their sins. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm glad you came to church today. What you need to understand is that Every one of us was created by God and turned from Him. We heard what He had to say and we decided that we knew better with what to do with our lives. And in our sin, we cut ourselves off from God. And we're headed for eternity, separated from Him. And God very well may have left us in our sin and would have been just to do so. Friend, if you turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus Christ and you repent of your sins and ask mercy from God, then God will show to you unmerited favor. He will take your sins and place them on His Son, Jesus. And He will credit you with the very righteousness of Christ. And you will stand before Him righteous and holy and complete. He will grant to you eternal life. Friend, if you've never done that, do that today. Before you leave this place, 
Repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Tell someone who looks like a regular around here. We'd love to begin meeting with you and tell you more about having your sins forgiven and the freedom that you have now been given in Christ to forgive others, to let go of grudges and to walk free. Christian, God has forgiven your sins fully and forever in Jesus Christ. He did this purely as an act of grace, not because you earned it, not because you were sufficiently sorry for your sins, not because he knew that you'd make it up to him in the end. He forgave you in spite of all that. He did it because he's that glorious. So as those who have received such unmerited favor, we've become his servants. And what he commands, we obey. We are his servants. We do what he commands of us. The Lord says, forgive. You must forgive. So we must forgive. And so when someone asks, why would you forgive that person again? Everybody hates him. Everybody thinks he's a jerk. But you keep on forgiving him. Well, you know the answer. Are you kidding me? Do you know what my God has forgiven me of? Do you know the joy that I have of being treated righteous because of the gift of Christ's unrighteousness? Do you know how free I am to show forgiveness to others that has already been shown to me? Of course I'd forgive him. Here you can see a return to the law gospel thing that we talked about just a couple of weeks ago. The law says you must forgive. That is inflexible. You must forgive sometimes. That's not in there. You must forgive some things. That's not in there. When they repent, you must forgive. But you can't. You won't. The risk is too high. Forgiveness makes us vulnerable to further injury. But the law doesn't flex. You must forgive. And then comes the gospel. And in the gospel, Jesus says, I'll go to the cross. I'll pay the price. I'll forgive you that and a thousand other things. Because I forgive you, even though you are unworthy of forgiveness. You get my spirit in you, and you get to enjoy the freedom of my forgiveness. And my joy and my spirit will enable you to forgive others of the sins they've committed against you. Joseph knew his brother's hands were the hands that sold him into slavery, and yet he understood that it was God who brought him there. And he was falsely accused and sentenced to jail unjustly. And he understood that it was God who put him there. And at just the right time, he was elevated to second place to forgive his brothers and become the savior of his people. Joseph was a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus, who was also falsely accused, whose death on the cross came by the sins of wicked men. Sins which were according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And he was raised from the dead to offer forgiveness to sinners and to be the savior of his people. Forgiven sinners forgive sinners seven times in the day.
And then at the end of the day, they simply say, as unworthy servants say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess to not trusting in you sufficiently. We admit, Lord, that we have erred in dealing with sin probably in both of the ways that we've looked at today. We've neglected to rebuke, neglected to forgive. We've been afraid. We've not trusted and we've held grudges and bitterness is eating at our soul. Please forgive us. Please give us grace to go to that person and to forgive them. We admit, Lord, that we've also erred in the other direction. We've not been gentle or humble in our rebuke. We've not been careful with our words. We've not made sure that we have the whole story. We've not trusted in you. Please forgive us. And Lord, let us all look to the cross of Jesus where our sins were paid for and forgiven. Let us draw from our Lord and offer forgiveness to one another. Let Pickle Baptist be a community that cares deeply for one another. A community that is eager to forgive and reconcile. Lord, make us a humble people, a gentle people, a kind people, a happy people. And let us put off grandstanding and arrogance. Let us put off harshness and pride. Let us be a a people of the gospel who have received forgiveness and who joyfully give it away as lavishly as we've received it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. If at any point during today's sermon the Lord has convicted you by the power of His Holy Spirit, I have tremendous news that as you trust in Jesus Christ, you will have been forgiven of that sin. And one of those assurances that you have been pardoned comes from Psalm 32, verse 2, which we read at the opening. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So walk in the assurance of this pardon.